9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am in rainy Washington, D.C. at the moment. Joining me here in Washington, D.C., we've got um, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. I think you're in Washington, aren't you, Ed Luce? I am indeed. And we have Sharon... Sharon Weinberger, the uh, Washington, D.C. bureau chief of Yahoo News. You're probably in Washington. I am bureau chief. Yes, I am in Washington. And we have back, because he has been teaching for a couple of months, David Sanger. But are you in are you in Cambridge or are you in Washington? I'm actually in Cambridge today, but I'll be back in Washington real soon. That's great. We're glad to see you. And then, of course, Someplace far, far away. <laughs> Always, and I, and by that I mean far above us all. We have Corey Shockey of Double I Double S. Hi, Corey. You're in London at the moment. I am indeed in London. Um, so let's have a bit of a conversation. We'll talk about the rest of the world. We may. I mean, I have the impeachment hearings on in the background, and um, nothing makes me want to talk about the rest of the world more than watching the impeachment hearings. Um, because they're incredibly aggravating. Um, uh, I thought there was a really uh, interesting perspective um, on something that underlies most U.S. foreign policy now uh, with the way that the shooting at the Naval Air Station at Pensacola uh, was followed up uh, almost immediately by the President of the United States essentially standing up and becoming the spokesperson for the Saudi government saying, you know, the Saudis will write checks, everything will be fine. And there was a great article on it um, uh, and these ties uh, from David Sanger. And so, David, maybe you could talk Yay, a little David. bit. David. Yeah, no, well, he does that. This is what he does. But, but, but maybe you could talk a little bit about it. And then what I'd like to do is use it as a case study, because I think what you what what the story gets to is how ties that we may or may not be sure of that Donald Trump has affect U.S. foreign policy. Well, thanks, David, and um, I intended it to be a case study because what was remarkable uh, about all of this was that the shooting happens, and you would expect the first thing a president of the United States would do is get out and say extend condolences to the family, announce an investigation, talk about what it is that uh, are the reasons that we're training Saudi officers, even at a time that the Saudi military is being charged with essentially war crimes in the awful humanitarian events taking place in, um, in Yemen, uh, where cluster bombs are being used against uh, civilians and so forth. And then... Um, move on from there to say, and I'm going to uh, talk to the Saudi government to find out how they're vetting these people. We've got to get them involved in an investigation, all that. But no, 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 no. We're in the Trump administration. So the first thing that happened was that the president announced 
that the Saudi king had called him to extend the Saudis' condolences before the president even announced any of his own. And then talked about how shocked the Saudis were about all of this and how much they agreed that they're going to pay money, uh, some kind of compensation to the families. Without that sort of ritual line that, of course, no amount of money can make up for the loss of your son, your father, your brother, so forth and so on. Um, It was all immediately about tamping down any uh, kind of blowback at the Saudis. And what did this remind us of? It reminded us of the way they reacted when the Khashoggi murder uh, happened, and the administration said, we'll follow the evidence, and we'll uh, hold anyone responsible. And then the president said, after we revealed in the Times and others revealed, that the CIA had concluded with high confidence that their good friend, the crown prince, was knowledgeable about what went on and may have ordered it. He said, well, the CIA's got a feeling, and who knows? I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And their interest in an actual real investigation seemed to dissipate. So it was the same behavior that we've seen time and again, not just with Saudi Arabia, but particularly with Saudi Arabia. So, you know, Corey, I think, you know, David's last point, this is the same behavior we've seen time and again, is really the thing that is kind of the big X factor in U.S. foreign policy. And 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 that is... The president is very transactional, and he tends to be very driven by his own personal stake in the matter, his literal personal stake. How does it help him as a candidate? How does it help him as a businessman? How does it help his family? Um, But the problem is we don't really know what he owns, who he owes money to, all these things that you know, are absolutely essential to understanding it. And the further we get into this administration, the more we start to suspect he's compromised, the more valuable this information would be, um, and the harder he fights against putting it out. And there, he's now up at the level of the Supreme Court saying, don't release my taxes. That, that would have seemed irrelevant to U.S. foreign policy in any other administration. And yet here we are, and it seems quite central. What's your take on that? So I agree with you that it seems quite central. I also agree with you that it's staggering that a president of the United States refuses the standard practices of transparency in our free society. But I have to say I'm almost as staggered uh, by the fact that David Sanger sounded more presidential than the president of the United States making a statement about Why does that Saudi surprise you? That would stagger a lot of people, yeah. (laughs) But it's a measure of two things. The first, just how strong the norms of presidential behavior are in circumstances like this, right? All of us know at some level what the president should say, and the president doesn't. And what I liked so much about David's article was it it shocked me back into the realization that the the pattern that we're seeing um there's there's no normal modern precedent for um that a president of the united states who has just had active duty american servicemen killed on american soil by a foreign national isn't uh you know demanding the king of Saudi Arabia go on TV and express 
his sorrow to the nation or have an investigation that uh, that they agree they're going to cooperate with the FBI or anybody else on. Like all sorts of normal things the president could have done. And instead what the president did was exonerate Saudi Arabia um, without answering basic questions like why were other Saudi students um, videotaping uh, it? What's with this dinner party and showing uh, murder videos? Like there's a lot that seems odd about this and the president didn't express any of those sentiments. He, he if I didn't know he wasn't the Saudi ambassador to the United States, I would have thought he was from his explanation. And that's actually really bad on all sorts of levels. I guess the last thing I will say though, is that um, I don't, the one thing I don't agree with you on David is the notion that it's more important over time that we know that we know the president's financial entanglements. I think that would have been most important to know before any of us had voted. Totally oh, agree with agree. you. Yeah. Yeah. Total, total, I, my, my my point when I said it was, you know, that with each passing day, it becomes clearer and clearer. Still, uh, I guess it you know it was clear from the beginning, but but there is this sense that, you know, personal interests trump everything. You know, um, Sharon, you may not know this, the day we're taping this, which is Monday, um, is, according to the State Department, International Anti-Corruption Day. Um, I, I don't know how you're personally celebrating this, um, but uh, sec <laughs> Secretary, <laughs> Secretary Pompeo, said that corruption enables and sustains autocratic leaders, weakens faith in democratic systems, and creates political crises that endanger our national security. Um, probably the first thing that Pompeo said in a long time, I agree with 100%, um, Sharon, although I don't know that he meant it in the way that I agree with it. Uh, well, that's all right, go on. No, you go on, go on. So there, there's two points I, I wanted to make about the Saudi issue. Um, one it, that I'm not seeing a lot discussed is there have been grumblings going back years um, in the military, in the U.S. military aviation training community, um, meaning those who are involved in the training of foreign pilots, because it was not just Saudis, there's Afghan pilots coming through, Egyptian from, you know, all of the countries who we have cooperative relationships with and or who have bought U.S. equipment. And you know, back when I did interviews on these issues, I mean, this is now probably five or six years out of date, but you know, over a number of years, the one issue that constantly came up was the Saudi students. Now, I must say, none of them were concerned, uh, per se, about terrorism at the time, but they consistently felt that the Saudi students, among the international students they were training, were um, you know, ill-prepared, not taking lessons seriously. They felt they were not selected as well or qualified for, for being pilots they often were members of or connect, had connections to the royal family. So, so that's been a real issue for a long time. But a second point that I would sort of take issue with, I think, I think David's article is great and on point, and Corey was absolutely right about sort of the, the norms of, of how a president should act after a tragedy. 
But a, a, an underlying issue is how we've dealt with Saudi Arabia going back to September 11th. There is a tendency when we have these strong bilateral military relationships, even with flawed allies, to sort of brush under the rug um, when some of these uh, incidents come up. I don't think we've had anything quite, I mean, what happened in Pensacola is unprecedented. But even when there were issues with the Afghan pilots deserting, um, you know, really high desertion rates, unprecedented, there was a tendency to kind of, you know, not, you know, we want to make sure that the US Afghan, that this is going well. There has been a tendency to downplay problems with international students. You know, and another thing that strikes me as I listen to this is, we seem to have gotten sort of pretty lax with the whole idea of national security. It may be that we're sort of in a period where we don't see that there's a direct rival. We're not in, in, a, in, a, in a Cold War situation that we were in before, um, although one might argue that we are, we are under attack from certain major rivals. But, but we find, particularly within this administration, a, a complete willingness to set aside national security interests uh, to place personal interests ahead of them. Uh, and really? Again, do you, you think know, so? If somebody did that, David, that would be a serious offense. That would be, no, well, sounds, not, according, not according to Bill Barr, but, but, but you know. It sounds like a high crime and misdemeanor. Well, you know, that's just, that's how you, you hear it with your English ears. But, but you know, the, the you know, the Matt Gates and, and a bunch of people this weekend were on television offering up Russian military intelligence um, tales of the Ukraine involvement in the attack on the United States in 2016, even though no one believes them, and even though they help an adversary and hurt an ally. And, you know, I know, you know, this is something we talk about a lot, but take it in the context of the Saudi thing. We, we don't seem to really care about these national security issues anymore. We seem to be you know, just what's in it for me, or at least that's this administration and and the, their GOP enablers. Uh, yeah, I'd agree entirely with the premise of your question. Just to sort of link it into what the others have been talking about um, with this particular attack in Pensacola. I mean, I, I think everything that people have been saying has been correct. Um, I'm just tr trying to think of the alternative, though. And with Trump, you know, there are two reactions to this kind of event. One is you know, if it involves friends or at least people with whom he's in business or for some other reason deeply admires, usually because of their sort of guilt-edged autocracies, as, as is the case of Saudi Arabia, then he'll react the way he's reacted, which has been quite remarkable. Um, uh, uh, or if, it's a, 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 if it had been Muslims from another country, um, you can imagine that he would have um, picked another tool out of his toolbox, which is his acute Islamophobia. So, you know, maybe we should be careful what we wish for. What he's, what he's, what he's, the way he's reacted to this is utterly unpresidential. It's almost certainly got some venal quality to it. Um, but remember, he is also an Islamophobe, you know, without, without too many peers. And that could be the, that, that's, the other way Trump could have reacted. Um, I have to say that 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 particular point essentially, you know, underscores the power of whatever his other interests are, right? Because he does he have does indeed, it, right? So he has a an instinct. Go on. It, it underscores the premise of your question too, which is we're not talking about a a president or an administration 
that is thinking in any um, principled or strategic way about America's national security. Yeah, and and you know, David, one of the ways this has manifested itself, just as the you know the new week has begun, um, and let's set set aside for a second the the discussion of the associated with the impeachment hearings, but there is a Inspector General's report from um, the the DOJ looking into the FBI um, behavior at the beginning of the Trump investigation. Um, and the report has come out, and it has, has largely said there was no wrongdoing. There was a reasonable legal predicate for doing it. There was a reasonable uh, uh, concern about a national security risk, um, and the FBI handled it without political bias. He identified some mistakes that were made along the way, although he ascribed them to low-level officials. But his main point was they were concerned about national security, and there was no political bias. And you would think that, you know, in a country like this one that wants to have faith in our institutions, the response would be, great, what a relief. Here is an IG. He's put out a 400-page report. He's exonerated the FBI. They did what was right. They were trying to protect us. And he was immediately attacked by the President of the United States and the Attorney General of the United States. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's astonishing. Well, the astonishing part is the inspector general is supposed to be a kind of outside, separate, neutral observer whose uh, term does not run with political appointments so that have uh, have it uh, out there. And once again, what do you see? It's the um, – I mean this is, after all, deep state radio. It is uh, – the, the FBI has, was charged with being part of a deep state conspiracy here, right? And that basically they had started up an investigation for political purposes. What the report found was that there was, quote, no documentary or testimonial evidence, unquote, that there was political bias affecting how they conducted the investigation. Um, they had plenty of evidence by July of 2016. And remember, that's a month or a few weeks after we learned about the Russian hack into the DNC. To open the investigation, this was Crossfire Hurricane. That was the, the code name that they that they had for it. They did find a lot of carelessness around the court orders about Carter Page, uh, who was a former Trump campaign advisor who uh, we believed had some ties to Russia. So it was not a complete exoneration. But on the main point that the president had, which was, you know, Obama tapped my lines, that famous tweet he turned out, or that there had been some conspiracy in the FBI to go get Hillary elected, they found none of that. You know, Corey, you're a much more patient, even-keeled person than I am. <laughs> and, and, and I have so to say... Up? And then, well, as today, as today was Low unfolding, bar, Corey. <laughs> um, as 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 today was unfolding, I was, you know, I was like, oh, here's this report. Well, you're not going to have the, the attorney general come out and just sort of say, no, I don't believe any of this report because that'd be crazy. And and he did. And and you're not going to have the president say the report um, actually implicates the FBI and says the wrongdoing was worse than I ever expected. But he did. And then I thought, well, you're not going to have this respected um, uh, attorney who's doing Barr's investigation into the origin of this thing in the middle of his investigation come out and say, 
I disagree with this respected IG's report because that would suggest his whole investigation was a political um, exercise and 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 not you know uh, attempting to be objective. And he did. And my head's about to explode. And then I'm just going to put a cherry on the top of all this, which you know you can respond to in any way that you want. But then we 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 learned today that in the midst of all this, defending the Saudis, the impeachment thing, and the the DOJ, FBI hearings and stuff, Trump is going to do something that almost never happens. Trump is going to meet with the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, in the White House, in the Oval Office. Because it, it worked out so well. Yeah, because the last time he did it, he gave him classified intelligence and it was the day after he fired Comey and they all had a good cackle about it. And I'm just, my my brain is melting, Corey. My brain so, is melting. So I have two uh, things to say to that. Both of them consolatory, David. Thank and, you. And the second one, I believe you, uh, you will make a chef's kiss when you hear the second one. Okay. So the first consolatory uh, point I would make is that you're exactly right. What they are trying to do is, is persuade us that no one has integrity. No one is believable. There is no difference between us and everyone else. And what those of us who believe that free people deserve to govern themselves and are capable of doing so have to keep saying is that's not true. There is a difference between right and wrong. There is a difference between corruption and integrity. There is a difference between um, an inspector general who is shielded from political influence doing a detailed investigation, which parenthetically, um, I am seeing outtakes from about tweets between Trump supporting FBI members. Uh, so, uh, so far from the FBI being in the tank for uh, the Democratic candidate for president, there were sure a lot of them that were cackling in support of the Republican candidate. But uh, the, the bottom line is that instead of being a voice for raising our eyes to better behavior, to being good examples for our children, to making the world a place more peaceful and prosperous as a result of our efforts, what the president and his defenders are doing is trying to drag all of us down into this seventh circle of Dante's Inferno, um, where uh, birds are spitting burning tar on our heads uh, oh, so, that, so that nobody believes anything. And we just need to, all of us keep holding hands and saying, that's not true, that's not true, that's not good enough. The second thing, David, and here's where I think this is really going to brew your spirits, because I just saw it come across my Twitter feed the confirmation <laughs> the insider that fed information to Christopher Seals, Steele's dossier on, on Donald Trump 
was Ivanka Trump. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> um, so it turns out his favorite daughter um, is in fact the source of the sealed dossier. Steel dossier. How wonderful is that? Well, I'm not sure that's exactly what that story says because I think it refers to a time in 2010 where Ivanka Trump uh, tried to hire Steele to work for the Trump Organization, um, which he did before moving on to his next gig. Um, but that in prior descriptions um, uh, of this, there was a, 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 a statement that some that Steele had a, a a friend somewhere in the Trump organization, and it turned out that it was Ivanka, which is just, it is lovely. There is a chef's kiss component to it. Although I have to say my own view, my own chef's kiss um, goes to your reference to birds spitting burning tar, which I, I thought that was <laughs> the most evocative that I've, that I've heard here. Um, it's the the steel dossier seems to me to be receding into um you know the distance i mean the republicans keep bringing it up but i don't i'm not really quite clear particularly following this ig report um how relevant it is because if they kept bringing it up saying it was an inappropriate predication for some of this investigation and this report is explicitly saying no it wasn't so are we done with it or oh, well, no, <laughs> we will never. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, long after w whatever you want to call it, mainstream media. You know, those media outlets that many of us read um, you know, stopped reporting on the steel dossier for various reasons because you know it was reported on. You know, the the, the Trump supporters continue to hold that up and actively investigate it and have FOIA lawsuits against DOJ because it's their sort of, um, you know, one size fits all answer to any, you know, accusations, allegations of wrongdoing against them that, you know, that the Steele dossier was evidence of, you know, the Democrats soliciting foreign interference. It's sort of, it's the evidence of everything. So long after we have stopped worrying about it, there are a large group of people of supporters of Trump who still hold this up as the answer to everything, which is, and, and that's why for them, it will not recede into the background ever. I find the Steele dossier kind of vaguely entertaining. And if any, there's any truth to, you know, Ivanka's friendship with Steele, who knows where it will lead us? You know, I mean, I, that's fantastic. Now, you know, we don't have, you know, forever and ever to have these, 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 episode. So I you know, want to move on to something else. And Ed, how much of your Monday, which is the day we're recording this, have you spent listening to the impeachment hearings? I um, listened to snatches of the early part of it, but um, not most of it, but I've been getting a pretty distinct impression from um, reports on it that um, the Republican defense um, is completely unchanged from as, it, as it's been in the Intelligence Committee hearings and the earlier Judiciary Committee hearing last week. Um, no, no surprise, there is just a, a complete doubling down on, um, on the line that, that there's nothing to see here. What the president does is legal um, and that this is, uh, this is a hoax. Um, 
So um, uh, I, I, I don't, unfortunately, um, find any sort of tiny shreds of hope that the, there are going to be there are going to be any Republican defections. Let me let me ask you a question, David. Um, this is a, a a journalism question, okay? Um, the the President of the United States, as we are sitting here doing our taping, uh, or whatever you want to call this recording, um, spoke on this uh, IG report, and and this is what he said: "It is incredible, far worse than I would have thought possible. It's an embarrassment to our country. It's dishonest. It's everything that a lot of people thought it would be, except far worse." Now. The president, in saying that, just said something that was many lies wrapped in disingenuous uh, feelings, uh, cloaked in uh, obfuscation and distraction. Is that news? I mean, you know, the president, does he just get to say whatever he wants and then every newspaper in America and TV show has got to report it, and and then 50% of Americans or 40% of Americans say, well, the president said it, so it must be true, and that it's he said, she said. It's not he said, she said. What he said is a lie. So how do, you, how do we avoid having that come across as a lie? So this is the great challenge of covering the Trump administration. And I, I over the weekend, um, went back to my old life uh, briefly because I was uh, filling in for some of my colleagues and took Air Force One down to the president's um, uh, speech in Florida to a Israeli-American group uh, and so forth. And it's the constant challenge as you're listening to a Trump speech and so forth and so on. And answer number one is if the president says it and it's new and different, it's definitely news. And we can't put ourselves in a position, and I don't think even though many partisans would like us to, of saying, oh, we're just not going to listen to him. We're just not going to give him any platform. I'm sorry the American people elected him. You may not like the way it happened. You may think it was illegitimate. You may think it was legitimate. He's legally the president. At the same time, you need to be able to call out very clearly to the American people when he's saying something that's false or doubtful, and that's why you've seen the rise of all this fact-checking. The fact of the matter is, for some portion of uh, America, um, they don't care if it was false, and the president's constant effort to go run down the media has been to try to create some kind of false equivalency here. And his use of the phrase fake news or enemy of the people or all that is basically to say, you can't believe them when they're calling me out. And oddly enough, that's exactly what he's done with the inspector general here. He's not just limited it to the media. He's included, of course, State Department officials who declared what he was doing in Ukraine, and inspector general who was coming to a conclusion he didn't like on Russia. Anybody who was in the way of their narrative, the answer is, let's delegitimize them so it becomes he said, she said. And that's why it is so important to go out and do independent reporting and lay out the truth as best as we can put it out there. Uh, yeah, 
Although, you know, TV, it has it easier because they should be having like a flashing, you know, lower third Chiron kind of thing that's when he's saying it, it could say more presidential lies. So you have a little bit of context. Um, well, even we are very, very cautious about using the phrase lies. And at times he uses it two or three times. And we get a lot of criticism for this because to say that someone lied is to describe what their state of mind was. To say that they said something false is to describe effectively what they ended up doing, no matter what their state of mind was. And it's hard to crawl inside somebody's state of mind. We have used it a few times, including when Trump admitted that uh, President Obama was a legal American citizen and that he didn't have any evidence to suggest otherwise. And we, I think the headline was something along the lines of Trump admits he lied about yeah, well, you know, in this particular case, a report comes out, it says one thing, and 30 seconds later, the president says, no, it says something else. Well, I mean, I mean, there's two potential states of mind there, and one of which is dementia, and the other one is lying. But I, w I will leave that to, to, to editors to decide. I'm not in that business anymore. Um, Corey, um, as, 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 as we look at this, one of the things that I, I I see here is sort of the GOP stance on national security lying and rubble, um, and whether it's embracing the Saudis or defending the Russians or actually doing the bidding of the Russians, uh, or in the case of the president's speech about Israel, doing the bidding of the Israeli right, who are getting extreme, increasingly extremist. And and, the, and and not necessarily acting in the U.S. national interest, and placing personal roles ahead of, 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 of national security. And the question is, can that, you know, can that be rebuilt? You know, I don't, I don't hear another, I don't hear a voice. I'm not, I don't hear a senator, a congressman, uh, an aide to a senator or a congressman, on the GOP side saying, you know, these are actually our national interests. Let's let's refocus over here. Or, you know, daring to say some of this stuff is wrong. So how, do, how does that get addressed? Um, so first of all, I agree with you. It's a terrible thing for conservatives to have lost our moorings and to be uh, parroting Russian talking points, even if the president of the United States parrots those Russian talking points and making excuses for governments that uh, whose behavior defies our fundamental political beliefs and human dignity um, and freedom of expression. Uh, how do we get here? I think uh, we get here by people believe by members of Congress believing it is in their electoral interest and there's not another path to achieving it. I basically like I I wish we lived in a country where Congress people were what Frank Capra told us Jimmy Stewart would make possible in the Capitol. But remember, there's a reason Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith goes to Washington has to do that. Um, extended filibuster. It's because nobody else in the Congress will stand up and do the right thing. I think Congress is better 
seen as a reaction to public attitudes, which means we need to really address those public attitudes. We conservatives need to have a conversation about whether these policies, if practiced by a member of the Democratic Party or any other political force in the United States, would be something we found acceptable, or whether we actually need to look look straight in the mirror and acknowledge we have lost our moorings and start to reconstruct principled conservative policies. I believe that latter course is possible. I even believe it's likely. And I think you begin to hear conservative voices. Um, I have started to hear them through the fall, starting to say, we actually have to fix this. And it's what we are doing is bad for the country. And we actually have to, Democrats can't fix this for us. We have to fix this ourselves among conservatives. Um, but there are signs, there's, there's movement. Do you think something will happen? Yeah, I do. I think uh, even though it was only Bill Weld and Mark Sanford who were willing to try and primary the president, I think there's a lot of work that can be done by talking to major Republican donors and trying to persuade them to uh, contribute to causes and candidates that they would be proud to have in their living room talking to their children about American civics. Uh, I think there's a lot of civic activism ahead of us. I think there are, the run-up to the elections is going to be really important for Republicans to begin to draw a line between the time of President Trump and what comes after. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think you guys are all um, smoking something pretty strong if you think that's going to happen before the election, because I think the fear fact why, – why are people not speaking out? Obviously, if you ask people who are supporting the president, would you like your kids to operate the way he is? Would you like them to tweet the way he's tweeting? Do you want him you want them to use the borrow code? They say, oh, of course not, never. And so you say, well, why aren't you speaking out? And the answer is they think he's going to win, which with an with a unemployment rate running at 3.5 percent is not an unreasonable conclusion. And they're afraid of what the next four years look like. And Corey, while I'd like to believe that you know this soul searching is going to lead to a whole lot of action, if the president is reelected, I don't think you're going to see anybody push back in the party in his own party very hard against him. Um, for the first three years of his next term. Well, let's, you know, let's, we, we only have a couple of minutes here. Sharon, you're out there, you're covering it. People who work for you are covering it. Do you see any sub Rosa, uh, and I say that without reference to our own Rosa Brooks, who will be back on our next episode, <laughs> but, 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 but do you see any kind of um, uh, efforts afoot? Do you hear, I mean, you know, you, we've heard a lot of stuff like, well, if the, Removal vote in the in the Senate was um, uh, anonymous. You know, then there'd be a bunch of Republicans voting to remove him. Or, well, I hear a lot of Republicans say stuff about him behind the scenes. Well, you guys are out there talking to people. Are you hearing other stuff, or are, are is is there is is the GOP more unitary, uh, as David is suggesting? 
Um, you know, sadly, I think David's right. I mean, it's there. I, you don't hear anyone talking about a possible conviction. I mean, at this point, I mean, maybe there was that, you know, maybe a few weeks ago, and now it's treated as sort of an Alice in Wonderland fantasy. And, you know, 90%, you know, Trump has a 90% approval rating among Republicans. That's hard to push back against. I think what Corey talked about is this beautiful vision of the future. But if Trump wins in 2020, I think it's exactly that, a vision of the future, something that happens you know, after Trump is no longer in office. Um, I just don't see, um, I don't see that developing in the short to medium term. So Ed, let me, you know, let's wrap up here in, 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 in uh, self-serving style. I, I'm just putting the finishing touches on a column, which will appear a little bit later this week and, uh, you know, a website known to everybody. And, um, one of the things that I take away from everything that's going on here is that it's very easy for the news to focus on the who are you for side of politics uh, and and not the what are you for side of it. It's just harder to make it compelling. Um, and yet, a lot of the things that people are ascribing to Trump, um, whether it's policies that support the very rich or, or, or foreign policies that are corrupted by uh, uh, corporate or other kinds of interests or um, uh, gradually uh, 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 trying to take over the judiciary or, or have a, promote the idea of a unitary executive or whatever. These are, are, are things that have been afoot for decades. Um, the, you know, the, I just saw a study today come out that showed that, um, the top 1% of the U S population has seen their income grow a hundred times more rapidly than the bottom 50% of the population since the 1970s. And so, you know, you know, again, this gets to the, the, what are you for? And, and we, you know, th there's this sense, you know, Joe Biden has this, well, we'll get rid of Trump and everything will be fine. But it seems to me the what are you fors don't change that quickly. The institutional preferences of the parties don't change that quickly. Uh, and if we say it's all about one person, we distract from advancing those what are you for agendas. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you can pretty much pick any name of any sort of leading Republican figure. If you look at what they were saying about Trump in the campaign um, and what they're saying now, you know, you'll see you'll see two completely opposite sentiments. What they were saying in 2016 was much along the lines of what you know Ted Cruz said about him being a narcissistic man who you couldn't trust. Um, Rick Perry said he was a cancer on the party. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, I mean, all of these people, Lindsey Graham, very famously, um, described Trump as an immoral character you couldn't trust. And now, of course, they're all saying very much the opposite. They're um, issuing repeated statements in adoration of, of their leader. Um, Rick Perry, of course, believes Trump was put in the White House by God, which is quite a, quite a marked shift from being a cancer on the party. Um, and you have to ask yourself um, why. Well, I think Trump during the campaign, 
he was all the things, all the personality traits he's he's got now. But he was a big state Republican. Um, he was talking about Social Security. He was talking about Medi- Medicaid. He was talking about shoring up um, the welfare state. He was talking about um, big public infrastructure spending. He was talking in a very different way than the Club for Growth like to see Republican candidates talk. Um, but what he's done since being inaugurated is exactly what the Club for Growth wanted to see. He's cut taxes. He hasn't bothered with any of the public spending uh, measures. He hasn't bothered with training, retraining. He hasn't bothered with infrastructure. He's cut taxes. That's the one thing he's, he's, he's done. He's gutted Obamacare as far as he can. So what he was promising on the campaign trail and what he's proved to be in practice, I think, um, shows up the Rick Perry's and Lindsey Graham's and the Mick Mulvaney's for exactly you know what they consider to be the priority, and that is how do you raise money as a Republican and get reelected? Well, you get it from business that gets big tax cuts, and you get it from billionaires that fund your super PACs. And I think that there's a straight line between that and all of Trump's Republican predecessors. There's no, there's no aberration here. Um, there is, of course, in the personality type, a gross aberration. Um, but in terms of the bottom line for what is a plutocratic society, Trump is delivering. And, and so I think it's the continuity that's ultimately uh, more interesting here. In terms of institutions, um, you know, the, the, three, the three most powerful people in America are arguably Donald Trump, um, uh, Moscow Mitch, um, the leader of the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, um, and John Roberts. Uh, the um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and um, the reason why I sort of you know associate him with institutions is he is famously somebody who pays some regard as Supreme Court Chief Justice to the integrity or reputation of the institution of the Supreme Court, and he has hit back at Trump once or twice when Trump has um, um, attempted to describe it as a purely partisan body, and I think that could be very relevant if we are looking for strands of hope, when it comes to the Senate trial, John Roberts will be presiding over that trial. Of course, McConnell, I guess to some degree in concert with Chuck Schumer, will be setting up the rules for this trial, but Roberts will be, will be presiding over the trial. And when, you know, when they ask, when the Democratic managers of the prosecution of, of Trump ask for Mick Mulvaney to testify, um, uh, or McGahn to testify, or John Bolton to testify, if Roberts agrees, there's just no way they can turn down a chief justice. They can turn down Adam Schiff and say, let the courts adjudicate. But if the apex of the courts is saying, appear, please, and, and testify, I think they will have to testify. And if John Roberts you know, is paying regard to the reputation of the Supreme Court and its institutional integrity, um, then there's at least going to be half of his brain arguing that that's exactly what should happen. So, you know, that that's where I'd look look for hope um, is is in Roberts, and of course that's a, you know a thin read, but um, but it's not nothing. Um, well, uh, I, you know, I, ha- I have to say uh, we discussed this a little bit on the podcast last Thursday, the more legally oriented podcast that we've got uh, with a historian. Um, uh, uh, Frank Bowman, uh, who's a historian of impeachment, 
Um, and he was very skeptical that Roberts would influence things much too much. Uh, I encourage you to listen to it. In fact, I encourage everybody to come back on Thursday. Uh, we, we dive a little bit more deeply in Thursday these days into the impeachment thing because that's going on. And, um, uh, and, and we try to devote Mondays to the international implications of this, the national security implications of this. And I think uh, that has been done extremely well today by this terrific uh, panel of friends here. Um, thank you, Corey. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Ed. Thanks to everybody for joining us. And uh, for more on these other podcasts that we're doing and, and, and everything else, go to um, uh, thedsrnetwork.com, look them up, listen to them. It's Christmas time. Go shop in the swag store for some excellent uh, Deep State Radio swag. Become a member. Give a membership as a gift. Uh, it, helps, uh, it helps sustain us. Uh, and it makes us happy, you know, and it's, it's the holiday season and making us happy. Um, it's important, it's right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Are you we want naturally to happy? I don't understand. Yeah, no, no, really happy. You're cutting I mean, into you're... the marketing, David. Knock it off. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. Nah, well, it's okay. It's you know everybody is according to character, but so many people tune into this podcast for the substance and then to hear Corey laugh. You know, because that <laughs> lifts them up. Um, and I'm so and thank happy you, to oblige. And thank you for doing that on 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 cue. Um, so <laughs> come back next week. Uh, we'll see you all. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.